And it is truly amazing what God has done in His grace to redeem us and the lengths that He went to bring us the good news of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 10 to 12 today. And uh, I'm going to point out again that this is the end of this first long opening sentence that Peter has in his letter that goes from uh, verse 3 to verse 12. And so I thought what I'd do as we begin today is actually read the whole thing for us so we can hear it at one time, and then we're going to focus on the last part on verses 10 to 12. Let me read this for us. Beginning at verse 3, Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, it is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And today I pray that you would help us to understand it, to see how amazing not only the gospel is, but the lengths to which you have gone to bring it to us. And Father, may we join in that procession of those who have been so faithful to declare the good news to us and to others. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, uh, John Waterworth and Ron Burgett and I uh, were in Arizona for a Promise Keepers conference. And while we were there, uh, John and I were talking about it. Neither of us had ever seen the Grand Canyon. And so uh, Ron had, and he had another meeting he was going to go to. And so John and I rented a car, and we made the drive up from Phoenix up through, you know, Sedona and the Red Rock Country and up past Flagstaff to the Grand Canyon. And uh, those of you that have been there, you know when you approach the South Rim, it's kind of flat actually for a ways coming in where you got all these scrub trees on either side and you really can't see much of anything. You're just on this road and your view is obstructed by these kind of lower trees that are there in that area. And then you come to Canyon Village and it's like, there it is. And I remember the first time when I saw the Grand Canyon, I was just stunned by its size and its beauty. 
I mean, I, I love the mountains. I love seeing the, the vistas and those panoramic views and everything, but I had never seen anything or as big or as grand, if you will, as the Grand Canyon. You know, I tried to take some pictures of it, but the pictures that I took just didn't do it justice. I mean, it's, it's so big. How do you get it all in? Uh, it stretches for 277 miles across Arizona. I mean, that's, that's like going from, you know, Wisconsin to the South Dakota border and just going across the whole state and cutting it in half. And then, you know, at the Canyon Village, it's a mile deep and it's over 10 miles across from side to side and you look down in this chasm and it's just, it's huge. I mean, that'd be like uh, taking everything between Lindstrom and North Ranch and just, you know, wiping it out and going down a mile deep and then coming up on the other side and, you know, no way to get across. You have to drive around this thing. Uh, no wonder I couldn't take a picture and get it all in. You see, the feeling that everyone has when they see the Grand Canyon is one of awe and wonder. It's just, you see it, and you don't know how else to respond other than to be kind of overwhelmed by what you are looking at. Well, I believe that's the feeling that Peter wants us to have as we study this part of his letter. That when we think about what God has done in terms of our salvation, that we too would have this sense of awe and wonder. You see, some passages in Scripture are packed with instructions on how we should live. They're kind of like to-do lists or commands that are there, and they follow one another in a bullet point fashion. But this passage, it's packed with wonder at what God gives, the gift of salvation that he has given to us through Jesus Christ. And I think about that in its original setting. I mean, Peter was writing to believers who were suffering for their faith. They were living in conditions just like the persecuted church today. And Peter wanted them to know how much God loved them. He wanted them to understand the lengths to which God had gone to bring them the gospel so that they might have hope and they might persevere through the circumstances that they were going through. So we're going to look at three things today when we talk about the wonder of our salvation. And I want to begin by talking, first of all, about the wonder of the prophets in verses 10 to 12. The first word that Peter uses to describe our salvation is the word grace. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they talked about God's grace. That's what salvation is. It is a gift. God was going to give us something that we didn't deserve. In that sketch, you know, through the viewpoint of the animals that are cast out of the garden, they're thinking, I mean, God created this beautiful world. He gave it to humans. He, he wanted them to have a relationship with him, and they rebelled against him. They sinned, and they were cast out of the garden, and yet God in his mercy, in his grace, had a plan of salvation of how he would win us back. And God told the prophets in advance what he was going to do. It starts in Genesis 3.15. That there in the Garden of Eden, he said to Satan after Adam and Eve had sinned, that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
He describes this spiritual battle that's going to take place throughout history between the people who love God and want to follow him and those who have chosen to follow Satan or rebel against God. And there's going to be this enmity. There's going to be this spiritual battle. And Satan's going to strike a blow against this one who is going to come. He will strike his heel. But the one that God is going to send, this Redeemer, this Savior, will ultimately crush Satan's head. To us, it's promise of what God was going to do. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It is the first announcement of the gospel. There, right there in the Garden of Eden. And for Adam and Eve, the question really was like, well, well who and when? When's this going to happen? When's this, this man going to come who will be this Redeemer, this Savior? And they took this promise so seriously that when Eve gave birth to her first son, Cain, she thought, here he is. You know, this is the man. This is the one that God's going to give that will redeem us and bring us back. But we know that Cain was not the one. The promise was about the Messiah, this one who would come to save us from our sins. When you study the Old Testament, you see that there are over 300 prophecies about the Messiah that are there. There are over 60 major prophecies about the Messiah. They talk about his birth and where he would be born. They talk about his ministry and where his ministry would be located and what he would do. It talks about his death and his resurrection. It talks about all of these things in detail, in specifics. And the prophets searched intently the scriptures. They searched with the greatest care. Those are strong words. It means to seek out and investigate. It's what you do when you're trying to solve a mystery and you want to try to put all the clues together and figure this out. What, what's the answer? What is it that this is pointing toward? It's kind of how we work too. If we lose something that is valuable to us, we lose our car keys or our wallet or something like that, we search intently because we want to find it. We want to know the answer. And what were these prophets trying to find out? They wanted to know the time and the circumstances when the Messiah would come. When will this be? When will this promise be fulfilled? And the promises that were given as they built one upon another were staggering. That this one who's going to come would, would be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would uh, have to flee early in his life into Egypt, and God would bring his son out of Egypt. And again, all of these details that were there, they studied, wanting to know the time and the circumstances. You know, it's the same way that we feel about the second coming of Jesus. We know that he's going to come again. We just don't know exactly when. And we study the scriptures and we want to know the time and the circumstances. When will these things be? We have that same kind of curiosity and God says to us that only he knows. And he wants us to remain faithful and to be watching and waiting and ready for his return. Well, what did the prophets know about the Messiah as God's plan unfolded? It is quite amazing how much they knew. 
And he tells us here, Peter does, that it was the Spirit of Christ in them that was helping them to discern all of these things. It's the Holy Spirit. And he is called the Spirit of Christ because it is Christ who sent the Holy Spirit. When he returned to the Father, he asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit to us. So the same Spirit who dwells in you and me as a believer in Christ is the same Holy Spirit that was guiding those prophets. And they knew several things. They knew that God was going to send a Messiah, someone who would be this Savior, this Son of God, this Lord who would come. And they knew that the Messiah would have to suffer. Isaiah 53 is just one of the clearest passages about that. And it comes at the apex of Isaiah's writing in those chapters 40 to 66. It is at the very pinnacle in the way that it is written. That this one who would come would bear our sins, our iniquities. He would be crushed for our transgressions. And God would lay upon him the guilt of his all. He would die. But they also knew that he would be glorified, that he would rise again, that God would not allow his body to see decay. Those are astounding truths that were told hundreds of years before Jesus even came. They even knew the order, suffering first, glories to follow. It's the same order for us. It's the same order for all of us as believers in Jesus Christ. In this world, we are going to experience suffering and trials, and some more severe than others. That's what the persecuted church is going through, and they are experiencing now, and the glory of Christ is to follow. The glory that we will have with him in heaven is still to come. And they knew that they were serving us, not themselves. They were serving us. And they longed to see the coming of Christ, but they did not see it. In the book of Hebrews, the scripture says in Hebrews eleven thirteen that they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They knew that they were strangers and aliens in this land, and so they could, they could see it on the horizon. They wanted to be there in that day, but they were not there to see it. And that's really why Jesus said to the disciples in Luke 10, 23 and 24, he said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Those disciples saw the Messiah. They saw Jesus. They saw this one who was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And what a great privilege indeed they had. But what a great privilege we have as New Testament believers to see both sides, to have the Old and the New Testament, to see how the Old points forward to Christ, how it was fulfilled in the life of Jesus, and then to understand his plan and what history is moving toward when he returns. We see the whole scope of Scripture and we look forward to the day when Jesus will come again. The wonder of the prophets was great. And many of them gave their lives to bring us the truth of the scriptures. We also have here the wonder of the preachers. Peter writes and he talked about the prophets 
And in verse 12, he says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you, told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Peter is recognizing that there are those who have come to these new believers, these Gentile Christians now, who have brought them the good news of the gospel. And that too is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that makes the preaching of the gospel effective. And by using the word preacher here, I'm not talking just about pastors or clergy. I'm talking about anyone who shares the good news of the gospel with a friend. It is the work that you do. It's the work that I do. It's the work that missionaries and evangelists do whenever we tell someone about Jesus Christ. We are totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit to make that effective. Uh, He's the one who empowers the preacher. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I want you to go. I want you to bring that good news of the gospel to the nations. So the first, then, to declare the good news of the gospel were the apostles. These disciples who had witnessed Jesus' life and ministry, and they came to uh, wherever they went as they traveled around the world, they declared what they had seen with their eyes, what they had heard with their ears, what they had handled, what they had touched. They said, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, and we declare to you these things so that you might have fellowship with God and with us. From history and tradition, we learned that In addition to Paul's missionary journeys, the other apostles traveled all around the world at that time. Peter went to Rome. John went to Ephesus. Philip went to northern Turkey. Andrew went into Russia. Mark went into Egypt. Thomas to India. As far as they could go, they were declaring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And from the time when they began this missionary venture, from the time of the apostles to the present, there has been an unbroken chain of believers who have brought the gospel to you and to me. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about those who were part of that chain? I mean, they shared the gospel and they taught it to faithful men and women who would teach others also. It's 2 Timothy 2.2. They went and they made disciples everywhere they journey. And in church history, we read that sometimes the light of the gospel would almost go out, and then God would raise up an Augustine or a Luther or a Calvin. That God would use men like Wycliffe or Tyndale to translate the Bible into the language of the common people, the common language of the people. God would raise up missionaries like William Uh, William Carey or Adoniram Judson or Hudson Taylor or Amy Carmichael and a host of others who would bring the gospel to unreached people groups. And some of those individuals paid dearly for their faith. Some lost their lives. Some left home and country. And we have gained because of their sacrifice. And there are hundreds upon thousands upon thousands of lesser-known individuals who have done that same work to bring the gospel to us. You know, that gospel 
is still effective and it is still changing lives. Last week, if you were here in the message, I told you the story about uh, Etau, about this tribe in Papua New Guinea that uh, Mark Zook and his wife traveled to live among and brought them the gospel. And then remember how when uh, he shared that, he built it by uh, sharing the Old Testament stories and kind of laid the foundation so that when he came to tell them about Jesus Christ, who he was and his death and resurrection, they shouted, Etau, Etau, it's true, it's true. And they rejoiced and they danced and he had this big celebration. Well, it was interesting, I went home last Sunday and my wife um, said, hey, there's a story here in Christianity Today that I think you should read, you may want to use this. And it's a story of a woman named Kirsten Powers. She's a journalist and she's a commentator. I guess she's on Fox uh, News as well. But she grew up uh, in an Episcopal church in Alaska and she said, you know, it was very superficial and flimsy, her belief. And very quickly, she walked away from the church and walked away from anything Christian. She had an interest in journalism. She got involved in that. Uh, all of her friends became, you know, that she was connected with. She said, most of my friends were atheists and they wanted nothing to do with the church. In fact, she said, I, I grew up and I thought that Christians were crazy. I mean, they were just nuts. Anyone who would believe in uh, someone like Jesus or an afterlife or do the things that Christians did, she just thought were foolish. She went on to tell too how she was a single woman and one of her friends asked her if she was interested in dating and she said yes, but she said just nobody who's religious. Well, she ended up dating this one guy and then on one of their dates, he turned to her and he said, do you believe in Jesus as your savior? And she said, my stomach sank. I started to panic. Oh no, was my first thought. He's crazy. And when I answered no, he asked, do you think you could ever believe it? And she just shook her head. She did not think she could ever believe it. And then he said to her, you know, she said, and he said the right words to somebody who was kind of this uh, liberal and on the extreme left and everything, he said, do you think you could keep an open mind about it? And so he invited her to go to church, and when you know it was in New York City, and the church that he invited her to go to was Tim Keller's church, the Presbyterian church where he pastors. And she went, and she was there, you know, you could probably see the skid marks in the doorway as he was bringing her in, you know, both, both heels digging in and not wanting to be there, but she agreed to go once, and the whole time she's thinking, how can I tell him I will never go again? But when she heard Tim Keller speak, it was the first time she had actually heard a message that was rational, she thought, in her mind, well-reasoned, as he talked about faith in Christ and about Christianity, and she began to realize how clueless she really was about what Christians believed. She said his sermons were intellectually rigorous. They wove in art and history and philosophy. And she came back to hear him again, and soon she said, hearing Tim Keller speak on Sunday became the highlight of my week. There was just one thing that bothered her about the messages, though. The messages were so interesting. Why did he have to bring in this person, Jesus? Why did he have to keep talking about Jesus? What was it about this Jesus? And week by week, he made the case for Christianity. 
Well, through a series of circumstances that went on as God was continuing to work in her life, uh, she was encouraged to go to a Bible study that Tim Keller's wife led, Kathy Keller. And a friend said, this is the Bible study you need to be in. She said, I didn't like the sound of that, but I was desperate. My whole world was imploding. And she said, nobody would understand what was going on. I didn't understand it all. But I remember walking into the Bible study and I had a knot in my stomach. In my mind, only weirdos and zealots went to Bible studies. And I don't remember what was said that day. All I know is that when I left, everything had changed. I'll never forget standing outside that apartment on the Upper East Side and seeing to myself, it's true. It's completely true. It's Etau. I mean, it's what those natives in the backwoods of Papua New Guinea were saying. It's true. It's true because the Holy Spirit had opened her eyes now to see the truth of the gospel. And she said the world looked entirely different like a veil had been lifted off of it, and I had not an iota of doubt, and I was filled with an indescribable joy. That's exactly what we talked about last week. That's the same response, whether it's to those living in a tribal situation who have never heard the gospel before, when we understand God's grace, His mercy, His forgiveness, when we understand that He sent Jesus to be our Savior, and our eyes are open and the light goes on, we understand it's true, and our heart is filled with joy as that burden is lifted. I was just so encouraged to read that, to hear that testimony too, because, you know, sometimes we think about, well, God's doing it over there. Is he doing it in America among secular atheists? Is he doing it among people that are militantly opposed to the gospel? Yeah, he is. And the means that he uses are preachers like you and me when we share the good news of the gospel. And we invite people, just take a look. Have you ever read the New Testament on your own? Just come, read it with an open mind and listen to it. And let it speak to you and see if you do not discover like millions of others have that this is no ordinary book and that Jesus is no ordinary man. He's the Son of God, the Savior of the world. The wonder of the preachers is great. Every time God uses us to bring someone else to Christ, we marvel. We marvel at the privilege that it is to point someone to Jesus. And I want you to think about all of the people that God has used to bring the gospel to you. You know, someday in heaven, I think it would be a wonderful thing, a great joy, to follow the line back to Christ and to see who were all those people that led this person to the Lord or that person to the Lord in this line to bring us the good news of the gospel and how much did they suffer to bring us the freedom that we have thirdly I want to talk about the wonder of the angels and we see it in verse 12 at the end of this long sentence Peter concludes with this statement he says even Angels long to look into these things. Our salvation, the gift of what God has done, is so amazing that even, in the, even the angels in heaven marvel at it. 
I mean, you know, here Peter says that they long to look into these things. And the word long to look means to stoop and to look intently. The same word is used in John chapter 20 when Peter and John came to the tomb on Easter morning. And they looked into the tomb and they saw that the grave clothes were still there, but the body is missing. And they're going, what just happened? And what do they do? They, they stoop down and they look intently at the evidence that is there before their eyes and they're going, what just took place here? Could it be? Could it be that what the women said is true, that Jesus is alive? The words that are used here imply a willingness to inconvenience yourself even, to take a long look. This is not a quick glance. This is what Jesus invites us to do when we don't know him. To come to the gospel, to look at it, and not make this kind of quick glance, but to think about it and to consider the evidence that is there. Even the angels do that. Why do the angels wonder at our salvation? Well, let's think about it for a moment from their perspective. They see both worlds at the same time. They see heaven and earth. They see God in his glory. Can you imagine the awe in that? To see God in his glory and they see man in his frailty and sin. They see Jesus, the Son of God, there at the right hand of the Father who was willing to lay aside all of his glory in heaven as the Prince of Peace. And to come to earth to take upon himself our humanity to become a man. This one who was there at creation, who made you and me, who made the worlds, who made the universe, now stepped into the universe as a tiny baby. And he would take upon himself our sin to pay the penalty that we deserved. At the hands of wicked men, he would be scourged and crucified and put to death. And they marvel at God's love for man. The angels have been involved with our salvation all the way along. I mean, I won't go through the Old Testament, but just think in the New Testament. The angels are the ones who announced the coming of Jesus' birth to Mary and Joseph. They were present at his birth and announced it to the shepherds who were in their fields. They ministered to Jesus throughout his ministry. They were there when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and they were there when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying for strength to go forward to the cross. The angels were there at his resurrection and at his ascension. They were with the apostles when the apostles preached the good news of the gospel. They at times rescued the apostles from situations when they were thrown in prison. They encouraged and strengthened them. And they had been present with believers all through the centuries. And we are told that they are present with us even when we meet in worship. They are here today. And the angels marvel at the mystery of salvation because there is no salvation for angels spoken of in Scripture. When Satan fell in his rebellion against God and those angels that fell with him rebelled against God, there was no second chance. They had seen the glory of the living God. They had seen his son, Jesus Christ. And then when they, in their pride, rebelled, they were cast out of heaven forever. And what awaits them is the lake of fire, the second death. And because of that, the angels will never know the joy of the redeemed 
or the presence of the indwelling Christ. And they wonder, what is man that thou art mindful of him? How much he loves you and me. How does this text make you feel? Does it fill your heart with wonder and praise at God's love for you? Does it fill your heart with gratitude for what he has done to bring you the good news of the gospel? You see, our salvation is possible only because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's only possible because of what he did for us. But today, let's join with Peter. And let's give thanks to God for the people he used to bring us the gospel. And let's commit in our heart to follow in their steps to bring the gospel to those who have never heard it before. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a great privilege it is to know you and to live as your people to have experienced your grace in our life when you open our eyes to see the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is. And you changed us forever. And we look forward to what you have prepared for us in heaven when we will be with you. But Father, you've given us an assignment here to go and to make disciples of all nations. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to do that to share the good news, to be involved actively in the work of ministry in the church, to help others to know you and to grow in their faith. And Father, would you bless us as a church in that area? Would you grant that we would be very effective and fruitful in helping people come to know Christ, in equipping them in their faith, and in raising up laborers for the harvest? And Father, we ask that all for your glory and honor. Amen.